Section 1, Part 2 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum, Bulletin 240, Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology, Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology, by the Museum of History and Technology, United States. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology, Paper 34. The 1893 Durier Automobile in the Museum of History and Technology by Don H. Bergable. Part 2. Description of the Automobile. Sometime in the early part of March, Frank convinced Markham that he could construct a new and practical engine using only previously tried mechanical principles. Drawing up new plans for this engine, he took them to Charles Marshall, who began to work on the patterns for the new engine castings. After the patterns had been delivered to the foundry, Frank left Springfield for a short vacation in Groton, Connecticut, where he visited with his fiancée. On May 17, 1893, several weeks after his return to Springfield, they were married. The engine castings were undoubtedly received from the foundry prior to Frank Duryea's marriage, and the work of machining and assembling the parts went on through the spring and summer. This engine, still on the carriage in the Museum of History and Technology, is cased with a water jacket and has bases on top to support the front and rear bearings of the starting crankshaft and a base with port on the upper right side where the exhaust valve housing was to be bolted. On the underside are two flanges, forming a base for seating the engine on the axle. A separate combustion chamber is cast and bolted to the head. Inside this chamber are located the igniter parts of Frank's electric ignition system. The fixed part, an insulated electrode, is screwed into the right side of the chamber and is connected with the ignition switch outside to which one of the ignition wires is attached. A breaker arm inside is pinned to a small shaft extending through the top of the chamber. Around the breaker arm shaft is a small coil spring, originally a spiral spring, according to the letter of Charles Dorier shown in figure 17, anchored below to a thin brass finger extending toward the right side of the car and above to a nut screwed tightly onto the shaft. This nut is also the terminal for the other ignition wire. The action of the spring keeps the breaker arm and the electrode in constant contact until the pushrod on the end of the piston strikes the arm and separates the two parts. Breaking contact then produces the ignition spark. Since the mechanism would spark at the end of both the exhaust and compression strokes, the battery current is conserved by a contact strip on the underside of the larger exhaust valve gear, by means of which the flow of current is cut off during the greater part of the cycle. On the left side of the combustion chamber is bolted the housing containing the tiny intake valve. A comparatively weak spring seats this valve in order that the suction created by the piston can easily pull it open. Clamped onto the valve housing is the intake pipe, enclosing the choke and carrying the carburetor on its forward side. The choke consists of two discs, which block the pipe, each with four holes at the edges and one in the center. Turning one disc by means of a small handle outside, so that the four outer holes cannot coincide with those on the inner disc, decreases the flow of air and causes all air to rush through the center hole, where the tiny carburetor tube passes through. The present carburetor was transferred over from the first engine. 
when Frank later installed the engine on the carriage, he noticed the close proximity of the intake pipe to the open end of the muffler. Believing that the fumes might choke the engine, he attached a long sheet metal tube to the intake pipe so that fresh air would be drawn in from a point further forward on the vehicle. Moving to the right side of the engine brings the exhaust valve assembly into view. This valve is contained in a casting bolted over the exhaust port in the side of the cylinder, and from the casting a pipe leads to the muffler underneath. The valve is pushed open by a rod connecting to a crank which is pinned to the lower end of a shaft carrying an iron gear on top. The gear is in mesh with a fiber gear, key to the upper end of the crankshaft, with half the number of teeth. This ratio permits the opening of the exhaust valve on every other revolution. The crankshaft of the first engine was retained for the new engine, thus giving the two engines the same stroke of 5 and 3 eighths inches, but the bore was increased slightly to 4 and 3 eighths inches. With this larger bore, and with the engine's speed increased to 500 rpm, Frank rated this engine at 4 horsepower. A heavier flywheel, with a governor resting in the upper recess, was pressed onto the crankshaft. As the operator of the vehicle had no control over the carburetor once he climbed into the seat, this governor was necessary to maintain regular engine speed. Its function was to move a slide on the exhaust valve unit to prevent the valve from closing. Thus, the engine, with the suction broken, could not draw a charge on the next revolution. During the recent restoration of this carriage, it was found that while most parts are still intact, Nearly all of the governor parts are missing. A description of them must therefore be based on the recollections of Frank Durier along with certain evidences seen on the engine. Just on top of the flywheel and surrounding the crankshaft rest two rings, three and seven-eighths inches in diameter. Into the opposing surfaces of these rings are cut a series of small inclined planes, appurtenant to each other. On the outer circumference of the upper ring Two pins pass through a pair of lugs mounted in the flywheel, causing the ring to rotate with the flywheel, yet permitting vertical movement. Underneath, the other ring is allowed to turn slightly when, by means of two connecting links, the arms of the governor push against them. These two arms, each constructed like a right angle and pivoted at the apex, are arranged directly opposite each other, far out in the flywheel recess. As a weight on one angle of the arm presses outward by centrifugal force against the spring, the other angle presses inward against the connecting link mentioned above. The turning of the lower set of the inclined planes against the fixed set above raises the upper ring and the fork resting on it. The upward movement of this fork, which is a continuation of an arm pivoted to a bracket midway between the crankshaft and the slide carrying the exhaust valve stop, causes the other end of the arm to drop, pulling the slide down with it. In this manner, the closing of the exhaust valve is blocked, preventing the intake of the next charge, and therefore the engine misses one or more explosions until it slows to its normal speed. A starting shaft is mounted above the engine casting by a cast-iron bracket on either end. The front end of the shaft has a bevel gear, which is held by a coil spring behind the front bracket, just out of contact with a bevel gear pressed into the upper end of the crankshaft. The short rear portion of the shaft is a tube which slides over the main shaft, 
fitting the removable hand crank to the squared end of the hollow shaft and turning the crank clockwise will advance the forward section of shaft through the medium of a pair of inclined collars with the bevel gears now engaged the engine may be cranked when the ignition begins the inclined collars slide back down each other's surfaces the shaft is again shortened and its bevel gear springs free of the one on the crankshaft while frank worked on his engine he realized that certain parts of the old running gear would need to be altered or replaced in view of the heavier and more powerful engine he felt the old wheels probably having compressed band dubs were inadequate he procured a set of new heavier wheels with warner type cast iron reinforced hubs the angle iron frame apparently sturdy enough to carry the added weight was retained but it was decided to install a heavier rear axle the front axle assembly was at first allowed to remain unchanged as was the steering apparatus a short time later when the engine and friction transmission were bolted in place on the running gear frank saw that the rigidity of the framework had an undesirable effect when the vehicle passed over any unevenness in the shop floor the framework was distorted and caused the jack shaft bearings to bind tightly enough on the shaft to prevent its being turned by hand in order to provide the three-point suspension necessary to eliminate this distortion frank attached the forward parts of the framework to an extra wooden spring bar installing between this bar and the front axle a vertical fifth wheel of the type ordinarily used in a horizontal position in any light carriage frank next calculated that with the faster running engine the speed of the vehicle would be about fifteen miles an hour too much for the heavily loaded wheels as he intended to make use of the original transmission he decided to decrease the speed by increasing the size of the friction drum he accomplished this by sliding a heavy fiber tube over the original drum bringing its diameter to approximately fourteen inches the original shipper fork carriage was improved by separating the original bearings to a greater distance and eliminating one of the two bearings on one end this permitted a smooth and free operation of the small sliding carriage in august of eighteen ninety three possibly as a result of indoor experiments frank discovered that the chains running from the small five-tooth jack-shaft sprockets to the large bronze wheel sprockets were tight at some times and loose at others this caused considerable unnecessary noise the difficulty apparently was the result of the sprockets being cast and not machined the pattern maker had said he believed he could make the pattern accurately enough so that no machining of the castings would be necessary nice castings were produced but these sprockets were the reason why an unusual construction was put on the crankshaft meaning jack shaft explained frank durier during an interview at the national museum on november ninth nineteen fifty six elaborating further in reply to the queries of e a battison of the museum's division of engineering durier told of the problem and the solution when he explained that the sprockets had places where the shrinkage was not even the hot metal contracting as it cooled did not seem to contract uniformly creating slightly unequal distances between teeth this resulted in the chain hanging quite loose in some places and in others the tightness prevented adjustment he contacted will russell 
foreman of the Russell shop, where the automobile was made, and Russell showed him a device built by George Warwick, who had made the Warwick bicycle. It was an internal cut gear, according to Duryea's description, with sprocket teeth on its periphery. With sprockets outside and normal teeth inside, the wheels were about six inches in diameter externally. These little internal gear sprockets were hung on double-shrouded pinions, secured to each end of the jack shaft. A solid disc, or housing, fitted against both ends of the pinion to prevent the internal gear from working off sideways. Duryea explained the function of these unique little parts. As soon as tension came on that ring gear that we talked about, it not only tightened the chain hanging on the sprocket on the upper side, but it tightened it on both sides. The sprocket rocks right out, both sides of the chain are tight. This feature is one rarely encountered elsewhere, and Duryea, later in the interview, said, To tell you the truth, I think I was just a little bit ashamed about the thing because I had to pull it off. I didn't like the looks of it after I got it on. Two small tanks, each with a capacity of approximately two gallons, were mounted over the engine in the positions they still occupy, the one on the left for gasoline, the other for water. The small fitting under the gasoline tank had a thumbscrew shutoff and a glass sight feed tube leading to the carburetor. The water tank, an inch longer than the gasoline tank, communicates with the water jacket of the engine through two pieces of half-inch pipe entering the jacket from above and below. The overflow tank, holding just over a gallon, is suspended between the rear axle and the flywheel. A number of mufflers were constructed for the engine. The first experimental one was built of wood, being a box of 6 by 6 by 15 inches with a hole for the exhaust pipe in one end and a series of small holes in the opposite end. Inside, Frank arranged metal plates which were somewhat shorter than the depth of the box. Every other one was attached to the bottom of the box. The intermediate plates were fastened to the top. This contrivance muffled the sound considerably, but as might be expected, soon began to smoke. There can be little doubt that it was replaced before any of the outdoor trials began. Another type consisted of a cylindrical metal shell, perhaps six inches in diameter and ten or twelve inches long. Here, a series of perforated baffle plates were inserted, with alternating solid plates having parts of their external edges cut away. Two bolts running the length of the muffler held on the cast-iron heads in a manner quite similar to the Model T Ford mufflers of later years. Though partially satisfactory, Frank, in a November 6, 1957 interview, complained that it made a metallic sound. Perhaps this was the muffler he used from September to November of 1893. On August 28th, Frank wrote to Charles saying the carriage was almost ready for the road and that he hoped to take it out for a test on the coming Saturday. Off somewhere will no one will see us. There is no evidence showing whether the amount of remaining work permitted the proposed trial on September 2nd. The body was finally replaced on the running gear, at which time it was found necessary to raise the seat cushion several inches by the insertion of a framework made of old crating boards. This allowed sufficient room between the seat and the frame to suspend the batteries and coil. Six number two Samson batteries were contained in this space, three on each side, in rows parallel to the side of the vehicle. 
The Samson battery consisted of a glass jar containing a solution of ammonia salts and water, with a carbon rod in the center, housing a zinc rod. It is difficult to understand why they used Samson batteries rather than dry cells. Perhaps they were concerned with the mounting cost of the machine and were making use of parts already on hand. A coil, possibly from an old gaslight igniter system, accompanied the Samson batteries under the seat. The original coil is now missing. The iron dash frame, previously recovered and provided with a rain apron to be pulled up over the knees in the event of heavy rain, blew in under the carriage top, was bolted back in place. Frank and Mr. Markham gave the carriage a quick painting. Later, Frank admitted the machine never had a good job of painting. Before the motor wagon actually got onto the road, a reporter on the Springfield Evening Union got some statistics on it, and an item appeared on September 16th giving the first public notice of the machine. Toward the latter part of the following week, Frank was ready to give the product of his labors its first road trial. On September 21st, the completed carriage was rolled onto the elevator at Russell's shop. Seeing that the running gear was too long for the elevator, they raised the front of the machine, resting the entire weight of 750 pounds on the rear wheels. Once outside the building, they pushed it into an area between the Russell and Stacy buildings. After dark, so no one will see, Mr. Bemis, Mr. Markham's son-in-law, brought a horse, and they pulled the Phaeton out to his barn on Spruce Street. There, on Spruce and Florence Streets, the first tests were made. The next day, Frank wrote his brother, saying, "'Have tried it, the carriage, finally and thoroughly, and quit trying until some changes are made. Belt transmission very bad. Engine all right.' He did admit the engine seemed to be well-loaded most of the time. He also had an idea in mind to replace the poor transmission, explaining the plan to Charles. The three gears on secondary shaft have friction clutches. The two bevel gears on same shaft are controlled by a clutch which frees one and clutches the other at will. This provides a reverse. The Springfield Evening Union of September 22nd carried a notice of the trial. This report, too, commented on the faulty transmission and the plan already in Frank's mind for the new transmission. The friction belt allowed of the speed being steadily increased or diminished at the will of the driver and caused no sudden forward motion of the carriage. But while this arrangement has many advantages, it uses up the power so that the two horsepower furnished by the motor, somewhat less than the rating Frank gave the engine, was reduced to less than three-fourths horsepower on reaching the main shaft. This would not be sufficient to propel the carriage up steep grades, but would be sufficient to run the carriage on level road. The inventors will do away with this belt in favor of a clamp gear and will make the drum wheel smaller. By this means, there will be very little power lost in transmission to the shaft, and by a patented arrangement, the carriage may be started gradually, but the speed must be increased by shifting the clamp gear to a succession of gears on the driving wheel of the motor. The speed of the carriage will be fixed permanently according to the size of the gear that the smaller one is shifted to. The test of the machine with the gear arrangement will be made soon. In October, Frank decided on another vacation and went to Chicago to see the Columbian Exposition. Charles had come up from Peoria to see the fair, and the two talked over the progress on their motor wagon and discussed the transmission problem. They gave particular attention to everything related to engines and motor carriages, 
and Frank recalls seeing a Daimler quadricycle that impressed him with its performance. Just what decisions the two might have made there are unknown, yet it is likely that they agreed to give the old transmission one more chance to prove itself. Returning to Springfield, probably in the first week of November, Frank gave the friction drive its final test, this time substituting a leather belt for the rubber one first used. Mr. Markham, though intensely interested in the experiments, apparently was dubious concerning the safety of the carriage. It had no brakes, and fearing failure of the transmission on a downgrade, he was reluctant to ride in the machine. On November 9, he asked Will Bemis to try it for him. The following day, the Springfield Morning Union gave a description of the run. Residents in the vicinity of Florence Street flocked to the windows yesterday afternoon, astonished to see gliding by in the roadway a common-top carriage with no shafts and no horse attached. The vehicle is operated by gasoline and is the invention of Erwin Markham and J.F. Durier. It has been previously described in the Union, and the trial yesterday was simply to ascertain the practical value of a leather friction surface which has been substituted for the rubber one previously used. The vehicle, which was operated by Mr. Bemis, started from the corner of Hancock Avenue and Spruce Street, and went up the avenue, up Hancock Street, and started down Florence Street, working finely. But when about halfway down the latter street, it stopped short, refusing to move. Investigation showed that the bearing had been worn smooth by the friction, and a little water sprinkled upon it put it in running condition again. The rest of the trip was made down Florence and down Spruce Street to the residents of the inventors. They hope to have the vehicle in good working condition soon. The same evening, the late edition ran a brief paragraph stating that the test was made to determine the value of a leather friction surface for propelling the wagon that had been substituted in place of the rubber surface used in the former test. Bemis, according to Frank Durier's recollection, was not impressed with the performance of the machine, saying, The thing is absolutely useless and for a time it appeared that further support from Markham would not be forthcoming. Frank, believing eventual success to be near, drew up plans showing his geared transmission, and with these managed to gain Markham's partial support. Money for material and use of the shop was to continue, but Frank was to complete the work on his own time. Now, receiving no salary, Frank worked hurriedly on the transmission throughout late November and December and the first two weeks of January, first discarding the old friction drum and shaft and the ship-of-fork carriage. He bolted a rawhide bevel gear to the lower surface of the flywheel. This turns two bevel gears in opposite directions on a counter shaft directly underneath, approximately in the position of the old jack shaft. The right bevel gear is secured to the main countershaft on which two clutches are mounted, one on each side of the crankshaft. On a sleeve turning freely around the countershaft is mounted the reverse bevel gear and clutch. Three free-running clutch drums, the right one carrying the high-speed gear, the two on the left carrying the combination low-speed and reverse gear between them, complete the countershaft assembly. The clutch assemblies are of Frank Durier's design having internal arms, expanding outward to press leather-faced shoes against the inner surface of the drum, thus securing the drum and its gear to the shaft. Behind this machinery is the jack shaft with its small differential on the right, 
two laminated rawhide gears meshing with the iron gears on the counter shaft, and the internal gear sprockets hanging on the small pinions at either end. A sliding cam bar, mounted nearly in the position of the former shipper fork carriage, is operated by the vertical movement of the tiller handle to engage any one of the three clutches. With the tiller depressed, the vehicle is in reverse. Elevating it slightly puts it into low gear, and raising it still higher runs the machine at its highest speed. As the work moved nearer completion, Frank realized that the final tests would have to be conducted on roads made icy by falling snows. He had considerable doubt whether the narrow iron tires would have enough traction to move the phaeton. Soon he devised an expedient for this situation, communicating to Charles on December 22nd that he was having Jack Swain, a local blacksmith, make a couple of clutch rims so we can get over the snow and ice. Our detachable rims referred to will be of one-eighth inch iron, one and three-quarters of an inch wide, and drawn together at one point by two screws, one on either side of fellow. It will be studded with cocks in two rows. January 18, 1894, was a day of triumph for Frank Durier. Writing Charles about his success the next day, he said, took out carriage again last night and gave it another test about nine o'clock. The only difficulty he mentioned was a slight irregularity in the engine, caused by the tiny leather pad in the exhaust valve mechanism falling out. Speaking of this trip, Frank recalled in 1956, When I got this car ready to run one night, I took it out, and I had a young fellow with me. I thought I might need him to help push in case the car didn't work. We ran from the area of the shop where it was built, down on Taylor Street. We started out and ran up Worthington Street Hill, on top of what you might call the bluff in Springfield. Then we drove along over level roads from there to the home of Mr. Markham, who lived with his son-in-law, Will Bemis, and there we refilled this tank with water. At this point he was asked if it was pretty well emptied by then. Yes, I said in my account of it, that when we got up there the water was boiling furiously. Well, no doubt it was. We refilled it, and then we turned it back and drove down along the Central Street Hill and along Maple Street, crossed into State Street, dropped down to Dwight, went west along Dwight to the vicinity where we had a shed that we could put the car in for the night. During that trip, we had run, I think, just about six miles, maybe a little bit more. That was the first trip with this vehicle. It was the first trip of anything more than a few hundred yards that the car had ever made. Now, Frank could give demonstration rides with the motor carriage, hoping to encourage more investors to back future work. Cautious Mr. Markham finally got his ride, though Frank had to assure him that the engine of the brakeless vehicle would hold them back on any hill they would descend. The carriage on which he had spent so many hours was to see little use after that. Its total mileage is probably less than a hundred miles. Little additional work is known to have been performed on the carriage after January 1894. There is, however, a letter Frank sent his brother on January 19th, which tells of contemplated muffler improvements. Another message was dispatched to Charles on March 22nd, mentioning the good performance of the Phaeton on Harrison Avenue Hill. This was possibly the last run of the machine, for no further references have been discovered. Frank spent the months of February and March in preparing drawings, some of which accompanied their first patent application, 
while others were used in the construction of an improved two-cylinder carriage. Work on the new machine started in April. The old Phaeton, in the absence of used car lots, was put into storage in the Bemis barn. Later, on the formation of the Durier Motor Wagon Company in 1895, it was removed to the barn of D.A. Reed, treasurer of the company. There it remained until 1920, when it was obtained by Inglis M. Uperku and presented to the U.S. National Museum. End of section 2